0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with uh, another episode. Not just another episode, but it's actually the fifth part of our ongoing series called The Rabbis and the Zionists. This is part five. We're actually heading towards the end. And start off with a story that took place in 1946 when the Satmarov Rebbe Elish was living in Ert Yisrael. He lived in Ert Yisrael after the war for about a year and a half. He lived in in the Basisral neighborhood right down the block from where the Mir Yeshiva is today. Um, he had a daughter and son-in-law who lived there. He lived by them. Um, his daughter actually uh, passed away in his lifetime. He None of his children survived him. He had several daughters, I think three if I'm not mistaken, and none of them survived him. They all died in his lifetime, unfortunately. Either way, so the Satmarov at one point visited the Chazoin Ish, above Rav Karelitz, uh, who is emerging as a great leader of the uh religious world or the ultra-Orthodox world in Eretz Yisrael, in the post-war era. And the Satmarov says to him, he asks him a question. The Satmarav says there's a Rambam that says that if you live in a place that does not allow you to serve Hashem properly, and there's nowhere for you to run to, then you have to go into the caves, you have to remove yourself from society, go to the desert, to the Midbar, and uh, live there. Cut yourself off from society so that they don't prevent you from ser- serving Hashem. If you live in a hostile uh, society, then move to the Midbar, move to the desert. So he said, we live in a, in a Zionist uh, society here, and they don't let us serve Hashem? So we have to move out to the desert, which was the position of the Satvarov, which hopefully we'll be able to develop it this uh, this episode. And here he comes to the Chazoin Ish with the question. And the Chazoin Ish thinks for a minute and says, You're right, we live in a society that's hostile, that does not want us to serve Hashem, and it does not allow us to. So we have to move to the Midbar, like the Rambam says, we have to move to the desert. So here's my midbar. The yeshivas are going to be my midbar. And everyone's going to just stay in the yeshiva. So the Satmarov responds to the Chazoinish that not everyone can stay in yeshiva their entire life. And that's an impractical solution. And you can't create a midbar that's not for everybody. That's, that's, it's not, not essentially not a real midbar. It's an artificial midbar. And it's not for everyone, and it's not a long-term solution. So what you have to do is actually find a genuine bonafide midbar somewhere and build it, and that's your and and there you and there you go. That's it. That's what you have to do. That was a confrontation that took place when the Satmar was in Eretz Yisrael. And the Satmar, during that year that he was here, he did a lot of um, talking to other rabbis trying to convince them of his extreme position. And he left Eretz Yisrael quite um upset uh, or or despaired almost because no one um he didn't really encounter anyone who agreed to his he felt very lonely, felt very alone. He said his biggest disappointment was not being unsuccessful in convincing the Belzereb Reb Aaron Rebbe Arla of Belz, who had also recently escaped the Nazis and was living in Tel Aviv, and the Satmarov said, "Your father was the one who taught me kanos, zealotry, extremism against the Zionist movement, and here you have moderated your position how can you uh, how can you do that and um that really that really hurt him and, and he felt very alone. the he even wrote about it, he definitely spoke about it about how Alone, he felt that he was the only one going against uh, the, the, you know, with the position that he had grown up with before the war in Hungary, in the very, very extreme position taken. So this is one of the confrontations that takes place, and that really brings out what the story is amongst the rabbis uh, as far as Zionism is concerned in the post-war era, until the state of Israel is founded. The idea. The question is, what is Jewish national identity? Is Jewish national identity formed around the Torah, around keeping the precepts of the Torah, the mitzvahs? Or is, are there other possible national identities that other nations have that the Jews can have, such as nationalism, such as having their own country, their own flag, their own Olympic team? And um is that is that a contradiction to Jewish national identity? Is nationalism something bad or not? And that's a very theoretical question that 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 we spent uh, you know the past few episodes explaining and trying to develop. Once the state is founded in May 1948, and even in the you know, this is already took place two years before that, it already becomes more practical in the post-war era itself, when the survivors are moving. To uh, And possibly a state is on the horizon, they don't know when, but then for sure once it's founded, so then the question completely changes. There's a paradigm shift in, in what the issue is here. The issue is no longer a theory about nationalism or anti-nationalism. The question is, do we participate in the state or not at a practical level? And if we do participate, how much participation is there? And if we don't, then how extreme do we go in our not participating? And it's being very pragmatic about the situation. Here we have, there's a Jewish state now, for the first time in 2,000 years. You have to also keep taking in mind another another idea that's going on here. At the grassroots level, especially amongst the survivor generation, the excitement and the happiness and the... The jubilance of the founding of the state can't be overestimated. In other words, ideology seemingly falls on the wayside even by very, very religious Jews, even by people who had opposed Zionism before the war. But after the trauma of the war, and at the grassroots level, at the at the people the man on the street, the excitement, the participation in the moving to Eretz Yisrael, the participation in the life there, even in the army during the War of Independence. Um, all that, um, for example, the current Seret Vizhnetzer Rebbe, um, who just became Rebbe a couple of years ago when his father passed away. He served in the in the War of Independence. I recently saw a picture of him in a combat unit and actually got uh, some sort of award or medal or whatever it was for bravery. And uh, You had things like that. You know, you had this participation and excitement and and this is it there's finally an answer we can get past the loss and the destruction because now we have something else so the rabbis and the other uh, people who form public opinion writers journalists uh, publicists in the Haredi ultra orthodox world and in, in eretz yisrael even even outside eretz yisrael they have to deal with a situation that's on that on the ground is is uh, in a certain way getting out of hand. And the way it becomes in its most practical form, the the most practical question there could possibly be of participation is to vote or not to vote. And that's really the question. Do we vote or not? And the pro-voters range from people who actually support the state, and we're going to take participate in the Democratic process of the state, whatever little democracy there is in the state of Israel in its early years, and um, and of course the Mizrahi takes that position. They're going to participate in the government itself, and the great leaders of the Mizrahi are in the early governments, even though it's the leftist secular Mapai, right? Zerah Varhaftig, and Chaim Moshe Shapiro and others, and uh, and Dele Fishman, Maiman, and others, and, and, and that's one side. Then there's the other side, the other extreme that says no participation whatsoever. This is the final break between the Eid HaCharedis and the agudis Yisrael. The agudis Yisrael says we have to participate, we have to be practical, we have to be pragmatic about the situation at hand. And the rabbis of the agudis Yisrael, led by the Garreba and of course the moderate elements of agudis Yisrael, such as the uh, Sadiger Rebbe and uh, others, and um, to a certain extent, Rabbis Zalman Meltzer and Zalman Suratskin, the great Lit- Litvish leaders of a Yisrael at the time, they 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 say let's participate at at the voting level because we're pragmatic about the situation. It's interesting you see that also in uh, rabbinical leaders in America. Um, for instance, Rav Breuer. Rav Breuer was a grandson of Rav Hirsch, which was very, very anti-Zionist. And and uh, Rav Breuer never really moderated his position in officially. Um, Rabbi Yosef Breuer, he spoke uh, very actively against secular Zionism and the secular Zionism of the modern state of Israel, even after it was founded. But he didn't call for a boycott of the state. He didn't call for not not to participate at all. You know, perhaps Yakis, they're more practical. You know, they take things that, uh, they, you know, it, it is what it is, and we have to deal with the reality in, in the, the situation. Ruben Grzovsky, who was the head of the Meitzas Gadeli Hatoya of Hagodah Sistral, in the American Aguda, he articulated the position, one of the only times it was actually articulated clearly, he said... We were opposed to the founding of the state, but once it's here, we'll deal with it as it is. In other words, we recognize it, it's here, and let's see, basically, if we would say it in a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, grub way, then, (laughs) then we'd say, let's see what we can get out of it. Let's see if we, you know, if we vote and we take part in the democratic process, then perhaps we can get... Um, some laws passed in the favor of the Jewish religion and a Jewish lifestyle and, uh, and keep a place for Shabbos, Kashras, things like that. And in addition, perhaps we can get budgets for things that we need and, and take care of stuff that are dear to us. So that basically becomes the pragmatic position. This pragmatic position is a very wishy-washy position. It's a very difficult position to be in, and really still today like that, because it's they, they ideologically they would like to say that we still believe in the anti-Zionist position of the pre-war era. Just we have to deal with the situation that it's here, and we have to participate in the process of voting, of sending representatives of the religious parties to the Knesset, in order to maintain our position here, uh, the viability of our position here. Um, And then then the question is, how sustainable is that? At at some point, you become more supportive of the state because you have to vote on stuff in the Knesset that are not directly related to a budget for the yeshiva. So you're voting on an actual national position, so you're participating in real nationalism. And then your voters say, hey our representatives support this in this position, that means that they're politically to the right, to the left, they are economically believe in this or that or the other thing, and it becomes less pragmatic. Now, interestingly enough, this becomes, it's brought even sharper into focus in the differences over time between rabbis who reside in the United States and rabbis who reside in Israel. The rabbis who reside in Israel at some level have to moderate their position for practical purposes they live here, and their followers live here and it 's easy to to main it's easy to state an extreme position, but it may be difficult long term to live that extreme position and therefore the egoist Yisrael rabbis the mainstream egoy Yisrael rabbis and garen eventually at a later point bells also and um and many of the uh, Litvisha rabbis as well, they are, because of the consideration of, of living here and of being part of the Knesset and part of the political process, so the positions are somewhat moderated, but they're very ambiguous about that moderation. No one ever gets up and says, you know something, it could be it is, no one gets up and says that. No one gets up and says, you know what, we're really more similar to the Mizrahi than we thought we were. No one gets up and says that, but they, in a practical sense, moderate their position. Now it's interesting that that um, when it came to the actual question of voting, so that's where one of the places that it came out. And there was these many. There were certain rabbis, such as the Belzer Rebbe. A listener alerted me to. I think I may have heard it years ago, but he reminded me. So thank you to that listener. And when they asked the the previous Belzer Abba if they should vote. So he said, uh, Yeah, you should vote. He said, Is it a mitzvah? Is it a mitzvah like matzah? To eat matzah on the night of Pesach? He said, It's not a mitzvah like matzah. It's a mitzvah like maror. That's what the mitzvah is to vote. And uh, Rav Shach, who was the biggest uh, promoter of voting, and uh, one of the greatest leaders, rabbinical leaders in positions. Uh, regarding Zionism in the state of Israel and how much participation and what should their position be. He was a very hands-on leader in that regard. He was once discussing voting and how big of a mitzvah it is to vote. But then he said, just remember that uh, going to the bathroom is a mitzvah because you have to maintain your health and you even make a bracha on that mitzvah, Asher Yatzar." But you know something, after you go to the bathroom and make the bracha, you don't really talk about it and discuss it with other people afterwards. Which is also a very revealing position. Because if it's such a big mitzvah to vote, (laughs) and we are participating, then what's there to be embarrassed about? So they're really trying to maintain this in-between position. Now, to confuse things even more, there were certain rabbis who never officially joined the Gurds Sisrael who never officially gave a clear position about whether to vote or not to vote, whether they're anti-voting or neutral about voting, or it's a big mitzvah to vote. And yet, they directed the actions and the activities of the Yagodis Israel, even without being in the agudis Israel. And those two rabbis were the Chazaynish and the Briskorov. And until today, people are still fighting about what their positions are. So on one hand, we have something very clear. Uh, I myself was privileged to hear directly from Menachem Parish, who was the longtime Knesset member for the Agudat Yisrael, whose son is still in the Knesset today. And uh, Shlomo Lawrence, who's also related to me, so I heard from him as well, um, that they received directives on a regular basis from the Berskara. And Menachem Parash uh, told me exactly how it went. Anyone's familiar with the roads in Yerushalayim? So where the Brisk Yeshiva today is on Rehov Press, whose, uh, the Yeshayahu Press was of course a secular researcher. And so, you know, it's interesting that <laughs> the street, that Brisk Yeshiva, and the Brisk Rav lived on a street named after him. But it could be that it was only named after he died. I don't remember when Yeshayahu Press passed away. But in any event, it doesn't matter. So the, um, the 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 corner of that street is the headquarters of the Yagodis Yisrael, till today. And um, the briskarov would time his walks to be able to meet Menachem Parish on the corner of the street when he knew Menachem Parish would be leaving his office on an average day. And he would as if as it were meet him by chance, and he would say, Menachem, what do you do in the Aguda offices today? And he would tell him, I did this and this and this. And he would tell him, okay, I approve of that. I don't approve of that. This is what you shouldn't have done. This is what you should have done. This is good. This is good. And what are you going to do tomorrow? And he would tell him what he plans on doing tomorrow. So he would give him a whole list of orders. Do this, do that, and the other thing. In other words, he was involved on almost a day-to-day level about what the good activities were. And similar with Shlomo Lawrence. And, and similar with the Chazayim Ish Excuse me, with Shlomo Lawrence um although he died uh, much earlier died in 1953 it was only 5 years after the state was founded but it definitely was an active participation at that and yet there are many students of the Khazoinesh like Gedalinadol and others who were very anti-voting and were very extreme in their positions and there is definitely students of the Briskarov and family of the Briskarov um who believe that the Briskarov maintained an extreme position who, um, was anti-voting. Many of the family of the Briskerov does not vote until today. And, um, and many of the students like that. And that was one of the disputes that the family of the Briskerov had with Rav Shach. Because Rav Shach was a very close confidant of the Briskerov. And he was, he was on the side that the Agudis Israel should participate in the voting process and that it was even a big mitzvah to do so. So there you had a, a very sticky situation and an unclear situation. I remember when I got my my um, my marriage certificate, so I did it through the Bedat Eidach Haredes, which is a recognized Bezden by the State of Israel. So I come in and ask for a marriage certificate, for a fee, of course, and for 400 shekel I receive my marriage certificate from the Eidach Haredes, and on top there's an emblem of the State of Israel. So I asked them, what's this emblem of the State of Israel doing? Well, they said, "You have to have an official... Marriage certificate of the state. so I guess for 400 shekel the Ada Charedis was willing to have stationary of the State of Israel. but what's more important is that in that office, I noticed a picture of the Brikerrov. So I asked the secretary who was helping me with my marriage uh, license, um, why is there a picture of the briskerrov here? So he says, don't you know that he was one of the heads of the Ada Charedis?" I said you know down the block in the Aguda they have a picture of the Briskarov as well. And his family claims he was part of neither. He wasn't part of the Agur or the Edekharidis. He was independent. So what was the position of the Briskura? And it came even more to the fore when, when the dispute about the Pojale Yisrael took place. The Pojale Yisrael, which literally means the workers of the Yaguriz Yisrael, was a phenomenon, a fascinating phenomenon that began in Poland in the interwar period um mainly working class Jews influenced by the socialist movements very very uh, prevalent in Polish society non-Jewish society Jewish society there's all types of socialist movements the Polish socialist party was one of the the non-Jewish socialist Polish socialist party was one of the most powerful political parties in the uh, Polish CM there's of course the Yiddishist Bund Party, which is socialist. There's socialist Zionists, right? Uh, labor Zionists. There's the Shomarot Zair, which is the youth group of the socialist Zionists. There's all kinds of socialism going on. And here, the Agudath Israel says, "Hey, we have workers. We have factory workers. We have people who need more, more. Uh, they have they have their needs and their demands, and they form a a." Party within the Agudat Yisrael party—it's kind of a offshoot of the party—and uh, there's a few. There's Tziri Agudat Yisrael, the Young Agudat and the Poyle Agudat is really uh, another one. And they—and and it, and, they, and it, again, it, form, it forms at the grassroots. It forms from the workers. So, what do the rabbis in Poland have to say about Poyle Agudat Yisrael? So. Several of the main rabbis there gave it a lot, of, lent it a lot of support. Uh, the two great leaders of Agudis, rabbinical leaders of agudis Israel in Poland, the Chartkov Rebbe and the Ger Rebbe of supported it. Rameir Shapiro, who was the very dynamic and charismatic leader, was a strong supporter of it, and that carried over into Yisrael in the 1950s. They were essentially part of the agudis Yisrael party, with their own needs, with a little bit of their own agenda, and because when they came here, their workers. They translate that into agricultural work and they set up kibbutzim and they set up uh, they, they have big uh, ideas about Haredi employment and building and, uh, you know, uh, construction. And uh, again, like I said, agriculture and all types of factories that they will they have a tremendous vision of what the how what they're going to do to um, build up the religious presence in the workforce. And the Agudah Sistrel presence, the so-called Haredi presence in the workforce. This is all the 1950s. And the Chazaynish supports them for a period of time. And the ger continues to support them. And they seemingly have most of the support. And then there's a split within the Agudah because they want to join the government. They're more Zionistic. They're more the pioneering type. They're more participating in the Practical mechanisms of the state. So are they going to be part of the government? How much participation will there be? And they don't. They start to not exactly maintain the party line of the mother party of the Yisrael. And it comes a point of crisis where the Mayatsis HaSkedele Hata'ira of Yisrael orders them to do something, and they refuse to do it. They say, we are independent. We're the Pahyla HaGod and We're going to do whatever we want. And then the question is, so are they going to be still included in Agudis Yisrael now that they uh, they didn't exactly follow orders? Or should they be essentially put in khairam, be thrown out of the, the party? And being thrown out of the party means being thrown out of the community. So that's the question. So the Meitz Yisrael of HaGudas Yisrael sits down and discusses it. This is the mid-1950s. They sit down and discuss it. And most of the ones there support the, uh, the inclusion, that despite the fact that they refused to follow the orders in this instance, but they're still part of Agudis Yisrael, We have to keep them closer to our camp. We have to, we, we still need their votes in a practical sense, but also they, 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 we're still all one community with the Agudis Yisrael community. Let's keep them in the Chabina Rav and the, and the, uh, and the Gareba and, and, uh, others. Other rabbis at the time they said, "Let's keep them in." An interesting member of the quasi member of the Mayyitzes who was there at the time was Reb Aaron Cutler from America. When Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, who was the head of the Mayyitzes Gedolei HaTorah of when he died in 1953, that was a serious blow to the Lithuanian world because there was no clear successor in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, to, in the, you know, there was a period of time. There was Rabbi Zalman there was the early days of the Stipler, and until the rise of Rav Shach as the main Litvish Torah leader in the 1970s. So there was this kind of like gap of leadership in the Litvish Torah world. And again, Rabbi Zalman Saratsky became the head of the Mayetzes, uh, Gedeli And there, there was the Stipler, and others, there was no shortage of great personages and leaders, but not a dominant person like Rabbi Zalman was. So the one who replaced Rabbi Zalman, at least in an official capacity, in his position as the Rosh Yeshiva of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in Yerushalayim was his son-in-law, Baron Cutler. Baron Cutler lived in America. But he would come quite often to Eretz Yisrael, especially for the 1950s. No one came that often in those days. And he gave Shiurim in the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. And when he was here, he participated in the meetings of the Agudath Yisrael and the Mayetzes. And he had what to say, and of course he was well-respected and world-renowned, and they definitely listened to his his uh, position on many issues. So Rabban Cutler says, we have to keep the Pala stroll within the Yagodiz stroll. We can't exclude them, we have to bring them closer, and if we draw them closer, then they'll start listening to us more, and that's the right approach. And everyone seemed to agree. But then Shlomo Lawrence announced, made an announcement, that he recently had visited the Briskarov, who was still alive at the time, and the Briskarov said, if the Pele HaGodis did not listen to the rabbis, you have to throw them out completely and totally disassociate with the Pele HaGodis Yisrael. So the Meitzis got up, and anonymously they said, whatever the Briskarov says, we accept the Briskarov is the Gadol Hadar, he's the great leader of the generation, and anything he says, we must accept. And if, if this is what he said, they... First, they didn't trust Shlomo Lawrence, who is he, he's a politician, and he's from Hungary to boot. So we have to find out from the Briskerov himself. So the rabbis sent a delegation to the Briskerov, and the Briskerov says, why don't you trust Shlomo Lawrence? He said, well, over what I said, you can trust him. <laughs> and that's exactly what I said. So, it, and they accepted it. So here you have a situation again, where he's not a member of the HaTorah. he's not part of Agodis Yisrael. It's not even clear what his position was on voting. But yet his opinion held sway because of his prestige, because of his charisma, and because of who he was and his greatness. And that definitely is an interesting position. And other, other, other um, positions at that time that were taken are not directly related to voting, but rather um, positions that were taken in participation in the state. And again, we go back to the, to the discussion we discussed last time about the effect that the Holocaust had on certain rabbinical figures. Uh, the best example of that, of course, is the Munkacher Rebbe, Rabbarach Rabinovich. Rabbarach Rabinovich, 1937, the Minchas Elozer's only daughter has probably the most famous wedding in Jewish history, where, um, where uh, it's filmed also, and the the uh, groom, the chassan, is this Reboruk Rabbenovich from Galicia. And the Minchas Elazar is the greatest kanoi, the greatest extremist, especially about Zionism in Europe. And his son-in-law is expect, expected to toe the line as well. Before the war, it seemed that he might be going in that position. He wasn't as vocal as his father-in-law. That That already was apparent even before that. But then in the beginning of the war, as a Polish citizen, he's deported to a place in the Ukraine called Kamenitz Podolsky, where there was a terrible massacre, and he barely got out with his life, a whole story in itself, and how he survived the Holocaust, a really interesting story. But ultimately, he survives, and his first wife dies after he had several children, I think three or four children from his first wife, who was the daughter of the Menchus He remarries. And he comes out of the closet a certain, in a certain way. He says, that's it. He believes in the Zionist ideal now. He becomes a full-fledged Zionist, member of the Mizrahi. And he makes a complete turnabout, presumably, um, at least in part, related to what he experienced in the Holocaust. Perhaps this was already brewing within him beforehand as well. And he becomes a rabbi in Eretz Yisrael. Very shortly afterwards, he moves to uh, to uh, South America, where he becomes a Rav there for many years, and I think Argentina or Brazil. And then he moves back there to Israel in his later years, becomes a Rav in Chulon, and then in Petach Tikva. And the remnants of the Munkat Hasidim are unforgiving. How could their own Rebbe betray the position? Um, here it is, that now there's a state, and he's a participant in the state. He, he's living there, and he's a... He's a member of the Rabbanut. All his rabbinical positions in Eretz Yisrael were as members of the Rabbanut, the, the Zionist uh, uh, recognized by the state rabbinic uh, position, and he worked within the system. This is not about voting. This is actually working within the system, and um, and 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 he he's a self-declared Zionist at this point. So that's unforgiving, and essentially, what happens is a very sad story and one of his his the, the the older hasidim managed to bring his kids from his first marriage over to their side at least some of them and uh, the current munkach Rebbe in 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 uh in park is is that son and he um and they convinced him that he has to take the position of his grandfather the men Elazar, that the old hasidim still remembered and he essentially is you could call it kidnapped, or brought over, or educated, or uh, whatever. However you want to, however you want to look at it. And he's brought away from his father, and that becomes a very bitter and long uh, dispute. And uh, very recently saw the will the Savah of the of Baruch Rabinovich, and how he um, how he writes that his children should not say Kaddish for him, and they should not visit his grave side. A very sad ending to that story. But a very um, um, a nicer and more pleasant ending to this story is a very, and also very interesting um, position taken, again, not directly related to voting, Uh, is the Kleisenberger Rebbe. The Kleisenberger Rebbe, on one hand is the grandson, the great-grandson of the Devre Chaim of Tzanz, who the Tzanzer Rebbes were always very extreme in their positions about pretty much everything, for sure, about Zionism. And not only that, but he lived in Hungary and was a son-in-law of the Siget Rebbe, and he, and he maintained a very anti-Zionist position. And after the war, he didn't become, he did not become a Zionist, and he did not uh, decide to that this that's it. He's he's uh, he's he's forgetting about it all. He does not turn his back on his former position, but yet he moderates it, and he does. Meet with Zionist leaders. He decides to build a community in Eretz Yisrael, And he decides to go to the pretty much unprecedented step about uh, building a hospital, the Lanyado Hospital in Netanya, which was his vision, which he had to work very closely with the secular Zionist establishment to get it done. And, uh, he did so. And, um, like you said, it, it was, it was definitely, about rebuilding what he lost. He lost a wife and 10 kids. It's very often said he lost his wife and 11 kids, but one of his children he actually lost before the war. So in the war itself, he lost his wife and 10 kids, um, and he tried to rebuild. In fact, I was recently uh, speaking to an elderly American Jew, and he told me that he grew up in Seattle, and his parents sent him to learn in Teir Vidas. Now, his parents grew up in Lithuania. They were immigrants from Lita. One of them, his mother was from Vaboylnik, actually, the same little shtetl in northern Lithuania that Rav Shach grew up in. And his father was in, from another little shtetl in, near Kovna. And they sent him to learn in Tarvidas. He's a very, very big litvak. And uh, and it's right after the war. And in Tarevdaas, they asked a group of boys, he said there's a a survivor, a Holocaust survivor who recently arrived in Artistral, And he was a great Hasidic Rebbe in Hungary before the war. He was known as the Kleisenberger Rebbe. And he's making a tish in, in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. This Shabbos, he only recently arrived in America. It would be a big chesed. It would be a great, great, nice thing to do to help this broken man who lost everything. He has no family. He has no chasidim. He has nothing. If A few boys from Tere Vidas would do a chesed and go to his tish. So this litvak ends up going with a bunch of his friends to the tish. And he described it to me. He said it was... It was sad. It was just sad to see. There was no one there. These This group of about five, ten boys from Torah were pretty much the only ones who participated. It was an empty room almost. And the Kleisenberger Rebbe, who looked completely broken from the war, he gave a long speech about what he plans on building. And he said, I'm going to build a community in America, and I'm going to build a community in Yisrael, and I'm going to build a yeshiva, and I'm going to build a hospital, and I'm going to build this, and it's going to grow. And he said, it sounded pathetic. It sounded like you're listening to a broken man who's lost touch with reality, who, who is so, you know, not, not realistic that he thinks he's going to have this whole vision of building things. And guess what? These, these uh, boys from Tehrid Das were the first ones to hear what actually was going to be built by the Kleisenberg Grab because he was, with, with his being broken, he was not uh, just dreaming he had a clear vision and he was a very, very strong person and amazing builder. And he did every single thing. And this guy was telling me, he's telling me this just last year I met him. And he's telling me, he said, it's incredible. Everything he told us then in 1946, he did. It wasn't a joke. He actually did it. And uh, we, we, we doubted him and he did it beyond anyone's expectation. But he definitely had to work with the establishment to, t- to be able to do so. So it was uh, because, you know, definitely because of the trauma of the Holocaust, the first time that a child, a, l- a baby, was born in the Laniato Hospital. So the Kleisenberger Rebbe was living in America at the time. So he, the nurses in the hospital, the doctors in the hospital, brought the phone to the baby, and, and the Kleisenberger Rebbe listened to the baby crying over the phone. And he started to cry. And he said, now I'm starting to get my revenge against Hitler and what he did. We're bringing life into the world where there was some destruction of Jewish life. We're bringing life into the world. We're bringing life to the world in Eretz Stroll. And he made a tish, a Shalom Zachar tish in Williamsburg, or maybe it was Bar Park at that point, um, in, for that first child who was born. So... So there's a, a moderated position, and his son already, from a second marriage, his son is already an active participant in the Mayatzis Gedali Hatayr of Agudis as, the Tanzareba, and they participate in the elections, and, and, uh, they, they came kind of full circle in that regard. Um, on the other hand, you have the Mizrahi leaders. You have, um, like I said, Rudalev Fishman. And um, who's actually a participant in the government itself? You have the Rosh Hashiva of Merkaz Harav, the Cook, Rav Cook's son. And these leaders say this full participation—the reality of the state—and these are great Torah leaders as well. There's many more, and um, they participate in the Rabbanut. They—they they pretty much—they—they uh, they take on all the most of the rabbinical positions in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. They have yeshivas, they're opening yeshivas. Reb Chaim Svinario, one of the closest students of Rav Kook, is building yeshivas using the Bnei Akiva and other um, uh, uh, educational frameworks to be able to spread the idea of the yeshiva Tichonit and later the yeshiva hezder, which is participation in the army. They're actually getting drafted and going to the army. They're participating not only in voting, but in being part of the government and in the decision-making process of the government, and they're saying because this is the Eschalt of de Geula, this is the Messianic times, this is the times where it's actually beginning. Until now was a vision. Now that there's a state here, so the vision is actualized, and this is the first step to come closer to the Mashiach coming. It's not there yet, right? And they formulate a a a wish. A a uh, a greeting really to say on Yom Hatsma'ut, which is used till today uh, in national religious circles. Moadim uh, leSimcha, which is a greeting of and It's not a full Yontif, but it's a partial Yontif. Ligula Shleima to the full Geula. In other words, there's a recognition that it's not the full Geula, but it's a partial Geula. And they say with the all the issues of the state, um, we still want to support it because even though it's secular. And even though they're doing a lot of things that are anti-religious, and they're doing things that are hurtful to religion, and even destructive to Judaism and to Torah life, and 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 sometimes the future of Torah and Yiddishkeit may be dangerous and 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 at at risk because of the policies of the of the the secular Zionists, especially in those times but we still have to support it because this is the beginning of the Ghula and this is what has to happen. And what ultimately happens is that there's the final break between the Mizrahi and the Aguda Sistro. In Europe, there was a lot of working together. In many towns, the Mizrahi and the Agudah would run on the same ticket in the municipal elections or the Kihila elections in many, many towns across Poland. And this way, the religious would have a majority if they would each run alone, then the Bund would always win. Occasionally, or secular Zionist party, but usually the Bund. But if the Mizrahi and the Yisrael, especially in the smaller towns, they would run together, then that would be a way to win an election. So they very often would be able to work together. But once the state happens, and there's so much support from the Mizrahi and its rabbinical leadership towards the state, so, and then, and the, and the, Hagodes Yisrael chooses the way of protest, and when it comes time to draft the girls into the army, the Giyos Banais, and they go take to the streets and protest, and when it comes Shabbos, and um, autopsies, and all the early battles, the the Mabarot, spreading religion to places where Holocaust survival children or orphans were brought, and and or the Sephardi Aliyah or the Yemenite Aliyah, where the Jewish agency would take them and, and and educate them in in ways that were not ideal as far as Jewish religious instruction were was concerned. And there was uh, uh, battles, literally violence. And I don't really get into the the whole story Actually, It's really a separate story. It's not about rabbinical positions. But the rabbinical position was to protest, to be actively against it. And that's the catalyst for the famous meeting between David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, and the Chazanish, that the Ben-Gurion, who is the prime minister of a state, actually came down to the Khazanish's house, house to discuss these matters with him. And he says, you're so protesting against it. There's this, there's this religious-secular divide. And what are we going to do about that? How is the future of the state and the identity of the state going to be formed if there's so much infighting? And that that's already the stuff of legend about what happened and what actually took place, what each side said it took place during the meeting. Of course, no one was there to actually talk about it. So, you know, there's a license to make up whatever you want, except for Ben-Gurion's secretary. No one was there. But that's already—that's re- really a story itself deserves its own podcast one day about that meeting. But that's the catalyst, that there's this opposition, there's this active and sometimes even violent opposition, public protests. And the Mizrahi says, no, we're not going to publicly protest. We're going to go along with it because we're going to take the good along with the bad. And that is the eventual break between the Mizrahi and the Gurdas Yisrael. So interestingly enough, there's one person who, at least for a while, is able to kind of straddle both sides of the fence. And uh, that's the brilliant uh, rabbinical leader, of rabbi Yitzhak Kalevi Halevi Herzog. He's not mamish uh, really so much completely on the Mizrahi side. He's the chief rabbi of the Rabbanut. He's kind of there with the Mizrahi. He's very close with the Mizrahi leaders. Um, but he maintains very good relations with Rabbi al Meltzer, with um with the Chabina Rav, with um, other great uh, Torah leaders at that time, and he's well respected—Laziodl Finkel, Chazanish even—and and, the—and um, he kind of is able to. He has the respect of, of all sides, especially in halachic sense. And a, his greatness in Torah was undisputed. Of course, people didn't like the fact that he had a doctorate. You know, at least Rav Cook didn't have a doctorate from Cambridge, and the Birdstag did. So that was sometimes held against him. Um, but um, but uh, this, this was, this was th- that for a while there were some leaders who were, um, were, were able to maintain that in between. Or, you know, Zag died in 1958, so it was kind of early on. Um, but afterwards, that's really the final break between the Mizrahi and the Aguda. So you have the break between the Mizrahi and the Aguda. We discussed the break between the Aguda and the Payale Sistral, again on the background of rabbinical leadership. And then the final break, also because of rabbinical uh, leadership uh, positions, is between the Agura and the ones to the right of the Aguda, And that's the Bidats, the Ede Charedis, and uh, the Nature Karta, which is a further b- b- split. And the rabbis, Rabbi Yasov in his last uh, years, and then the ones who took over the aid Haredis following his passing um eventually it's Reb David yungreis and uh, um Reb Shari frands much later really and um other 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 leaders of the aid Haredis. and they they say well we're going to split off entirely we don't recognize the state it's forbidden to vote in the elections we don't participate at any level um, you know, unless we're forced right you know they the eventually a certain official if you have a business, even if you're part of the Eid de Chareis, you have a business, then you're gonna have to pay taxes at some level um so there's is this level of participation right you when you buy uh stuff in the Makolet for your children, you're gonna have to use the Zionist money, so that becomes a a problematic situation by the way. That's a problem that, that Palestinians face. Uh, Palestinians don't have their own currency. So Hamas terrorists in Gaza, when they buy milk for their kids in the morning at the Makolat in Gaza, they have to use, you know, shekels that have the Israeli state uh, on it. So that's, that's the only currency that exists in these parts. So in other words, again, at the, at the practical level, there could be an ideological, ideological position. That the rabbis of the Edel Haredes and to a certain extent that the Naturi to formulate, but it becomes somewhat um, um, untenable to maintain to its fullest extreme. So what I said before about the difference between the rabbinical positions in the United States and in 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 Israel is that in America, being that they weren't living actively in the state, they're able to maintain a certain Level of extreme position within the Agudis Israel to the right of the Agudis Israel, whereas living in Eretz Israel, rabbis, for pragmatic purposes, were forced to uh, moderate their positions, even if they never uh, articulated the exact uh, position that they were taking. So, this, this is a little bit about um, the rabbinical positions taken in the early years of the state, um, the final break between the moderates and the extremists takes t- takes place in the 1970s. Um, what happens is, is that the moderate position within the Yagodiz kind of fades away, which we'll have to explain next time how that happens. The Yagodiz Yisrael as a whole moves to the right. The Haredi community as a whole moves to the right and becomes a, a bit more extreme in its ideological position and on the other hand paradoxically uh, becomes a little bit more pragmatic and more participant within the mechanisms of the state voting and participating in the day-to-day life of the state in its practical position so that becomes a paradox of Haredi life that still is uh, not really resolved and 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 the um, the break finally happens in the 1970s when there's a dispute in the Rabbanut about a big uh, question um, that rises and the chief rabbi of the Israeli army and later the chief rabbi of the state of Israel, Shlomo Gorin, made a very controversial psaq in what came to be known as the, the story of the Mamzei with Chanoch and Miriam Langer. And that's something we'll discuss more at length next time. And that will bring us and really wrap up the whole uh the whole rabbinical position as far as Zionism and the State of Israel is concerned uh, till today. So that we'll have in our last and final episode of the Rabbis and the Zionists next time, so stay tuned. This is Yehudi the Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Um, you can reach me at YGEBSS at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips to all these places exploring our past. You can follow uh, Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Don't miss an episode of the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.